Welcome back, everyone, to episode three or four of the Long Telegram podcast. Not entirely sure. We did an interview with Professor Robin Hansen from George Mason University. There might have been some technical difficulties. Not going to assign blame to <laughs> where those technical difficulties came from. But as a result, this is either episode three or four when we figure out what's going on there. And this is a very special episode because it is the Halloween episode. Um, let's just go around, introduce the host, and everyone can say who they went as for Halloween. So we have Andrew Edie, who is... Jake from State Farm. We have Ben Wheeler. Uh, so right now I'm the devil, but earlier I went as Mr. Tropicana and as Waldo. Also as a peach, but it was actually an orange as a costume. You don't get extra um, credit for multiple costumes. And Ezra Brody yeah, as... Well. I went as SBF uh, for actual Halloween, but I have a nine to five, so I'm in my work attire. So you're the blockbuster manager, and I've decided to go as Andrew. So I'll be talking all about, I'm wearing my sweater, got my hat on. I'm here to talk about multipolarity and how the U.S. is in terminal de uh, decline. Um, so that'll, like all be, that'll all be great. But in terms of today, I think we wanted to sort of focus on the war in Ukraine, sort of talk a little bit about a macro perspective, because there's been some interesting developments, and then get on to sort of where the war is going, how it's becoming a war of attrition, what that means for the future um, of the conflict, as well as the coming winter campaign that Russia plans to wage on Ukraine and what effects that might have on the overall war. Um, I thought there were sort of two main sort of interesting articles that came out this week which everyone in the chat not in the chat in this call has sort of seen i'll pull them up for everyone else to see and the first one came out of time magazine simon schuster um who has sort of been attacked for not being able to predict the war in ukraine as if that means he's a discredible source although it should be noted that ukraine awarded him uh sort of a medal of honor not quite the terminology, back in 2022. Um, so he has connections within the Ukrainian government, and there were a lot of interesting things in this article. Um, it sort of painted a pretty grim picture of what's going on in Ukraine. Zelensky is portrayed as delusional um, in that a lot of people around him don't believe that Ukraine can win a total victory. Um, there was a nugget of information that the average age of Ukrainian soldier is now 43 years old, which is quite high if you think about it. Um, that there's a lot of corruption going on within the war effort, which I think is quite important as we're talking about, you know, the effects that Western aid can have. Um, earlier, I think it was last month, there was a report actually came out of Ukraine itself that 30% of humanitarian aid uh, has not been delivered to troops. And CBS News sort of last year did a whole report about how um, I think two-thirds of the military aid did not make it to the front lines, which I think is um, quite in a sort of important sort of takeaway. But... I think that article, in combination by the commander-in-chief in the armed forces of Ukraine, he wrote a very long article in The Economist and an even longer PDF version of the article laying out where the war in Ukraine is. So it started off as a maneuver warfare, and it's slowly shifting into what they call positional or attritional warfare, um, which he describes currently as a stalemate, but that would, over time, give the Russian Federation 
the advantage in this conflict. And he sort of lays out many different ways to try to break out of what's currently happening and sort of shift the war back into a way that Ukraine can win. Because as he sort of lays out in, in sort of attritional warfare, sort of the John Mearsheimer article uh, argument that Ukraine doesn't have a chance. Russia has more people. It has more industrial capacity. It has more artillery shells. And so they're just going to beat Ukraine when it comes sort of when it comes to all of that. And it also sort of comes all these sort of updates as Russia is making a major advance on Avdivka, which is sort of the major Ukrainian stronghold and fortress that's left in the Donbass region. And um, that is a big battle that's going on right now. I don't think we're actually going to talk about it in the episode, but I think what it does sort of signal is that Russia is sort of regaining the initiative in the warfare. Ukraine's counteroffensive has ended. Um, a lot of the troops that were actually made for the counteroffensive are now being brought into Avdivka to defend the city. And so Ukraine's lost the initiative. They had five months of a counteroffensive. They've gained effectively no territory by basically every metric. Would we all say that the counteroffensive was a failure? Yes. <clears throat> yes. Ben? Failure is a really harsh word. Maybe perhaps it did not reach the desired goals. Okay, so just a, a, a political answer of saying, yes, it, 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 it was a failure. Um, and what was actually interesting is sort of a lot of Ukrainian commentators have been online blaming the West for the, this failure. That was actually not found in, in The Economist article uh, that was read. And if you actually look at what Zelensky and the commander-in-chief's name, who I just can't pronounce, so I'm not even going to try, the West basically supplied them with all of the things that they asked for going into the counteroffensive, um, which then raises the question of, did they not ask for enough? Did they plan the counteroffensive wrong anyway? Um, and that's sort of a retrospective thing. I think what we want to do is sort of look to the future as this war becomes a war of attrition. And Ezra, I know you've been doing a lot of research into it, so why don't you take over and talk to us a little bit about attritional warfare, what things look like, and yeah, what what's important. Okay. So, I mean, I would say just to define kind of attritional warfare versus maneuver, um, I would say the, the key element is that um, in, in maneuver warfare, and that's kind of what, you know, NATO and Western doctrines are based off of. It's about, um, you know, using, you know, kind of speed and air power to achieve kind of large breakthroughs where you don't kind of have to fight, you know, large artillery battles and you're not you know, you like if you look at the way the U.S. fought the Gulf War, it was, you know, flanking maneuvers and air power to disable uh, the enemy's ability to fight effectively. And that means you don't have to trade a so soldier for a soldier, a bullet for a bullet. Um, the way that Ukraine and Russia are set up is more to fight through artillery. And um, if you look at um, if you look at this war, who's able to have who's able to win the artillery battle has pretty much decided who's been successful on the ground throughout the war. Um, and, you know, going into this war, Russia had the largest stockpiles of ammunition in the world. Um, and they've kind of wasted a lot of that. They've blown through a lot of it. Um, but the West reserves of uh, ammunition have also gone down quite significantly. So, so yeah. Go ahead. I mean, like one thing I do remember reading is like, right, so Russia at the start of this clearly had an artillery advantage. Things like HIMARS were delivered and it's written in the Economist article how that sort of achieved 
parity for a while when it came to at least counter battery when it comes to artillery. Um, but things have now changed, you would you, you would say, in terms of the balance of artillery? Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I don't know if Ukraine ever really had a full advantage in terms of artillery. They were able to achieve like a local advantage in the south. You know, when they when they were fighting in Kherson, that was obviously there's a lot of logistical problems because they had to cross the Dnieper River. And now in the south, they've invested a lot of time in destroying Russian artillery in Zaporizhia. But overall, I don't know if Ukraine has ever had a full, like an actual advantage in terms of our artillery. Um, there's also, you know, it's not just shells. It's also the limiting factor is also barrels. So if you run out of barrels to shoot artillery out of, um, you know, that's also a problem. And I think at certain points in certain situations, you know, there's also different types of artillery. There's tube artillery, um, you know, versus like rocket artillery. Right. So, you know, we don't have to get into the weeds that much. But I, overall, Russia has maintained a pretty significant advantage in terms of their ability to fire, uh, you know, to use artillery. I think probably right now, Russia's firing, you know, it's hard to get good estimates, but probably around seven to 10,000 shells per day, while Ukraine's firing about 3,000. Um, so if you're getting outgunned somewhere in between two to one and three to one, it's pretty hard to have an advantage. Um, you know, the Ukrainians have some small advantages in terms of like the quality of their weapons are a bit higher because they're NATO standard and they have some more guided shells than the Russians do. Uh, but overall, you know, as Stalin said, what quantity is a quality of its own. And uh, Russia definitely has that quality. And so like what ways does having that imbalance, imbalance affect Ukraine? You know, one thing I read when Russia started this massive push for Avdivka wasn't that like 3,000 shells a day is bad in general, but when Russia's having all these armored column attacks, they would like to be able to fire 30 or 60,000 shells in a single day. Um, and they don't have clearly the stockpiles to do it or the logistics to make that happen. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it's more of a statement than a question. But um, Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's kind of intuitive, but, um, you know, the amount of artillery you have you know, determines artillery is the main form of firepower. So while the U.S. and maybe we've seen Israel, they deliver the majority of their firepower through the air, uh, the Ukraine doesn't have the ability to do that. So any time someone's, you know, most of the casualties, and you know, if you see like losses to armor or, you know, casualties, most of that's artillery, you know, in different types. You know, you have indirect, direct fire, you have, you know, mortars. But generally, if you have, if you see a Russian column advancing, the way you're going to disrupt that and destroy it is primarily through artillery. Um, so if you literally just don't have enough to, you know, shoot at people, then it's really hard to either take ground or defend ground. Um, I think it's that simple. Yeah, I think in, in that Economist article, the general said something like 60 to 80% of all tasks completed by the military are is involved with artillery, not aviation or you know they, they don't have a navy um or like ground forces walking or tanks or any of that it's just i mean yeah um and you saw when the you know the few times russia has been successful in having you know offensives it's been almost entirely through artillery if you look at um you know if you look at what they did in papanza uh, like i think that was like a year ago now um they pretty much just totally leveled leveled the place with artillery um that's pretty much the russia's most effective way of advancing is just you know totally total destruction through artillery so i think like there's an interesting i think we want to talk about like artillery production and like western way of war versus sort of 
Russian-Soviet way of war. But I mean, it seems like, right, the U.S. hasn't invested in artillery. We've invested in air superiority, which is something I want to sort of circle back into because there was actually some interesting sort of suggestions by the commander-in-chief of Ukraine about how to sort of get around this problem. But for Ben and and Andrew, I'm wondering, like, are, is anything that you're seeing here, has the U.S. approached its military the wrong way by neglecting artillery over the last... 20 30 years ben you first uh no i i I don't think so um there's really not a scenario where the united states would need a lot of heavy artillery we fight our wars we don't fight our wars here right we don't fight land wars we we own the skies and we own the sea um and so we have weapons that uh, are made to do exactly that um artillery i mean we have howitzers and stuff like that uh, uh when we need them but they're not, it's just not how we fight wars. And so, uh, granted, we are in a disadvantage because uh, in terms of helping Ukraine because we don't have that. Um, but if, you know, they had more planes, we'd be of great use. So, no, I don't think so. Um, there's really not a scenario, uh, at least according to our doctrine, where we would need widespread artillery. It certainly would help, but it's but not how we fight what wars. What if we were to fail to establish air superiority? Then are we just, ah, okay, we should stop the war? If that's like our that's only path, it's not. That's just not a thing. What I mean, that's not a thing. Is U.S. doctrine doesn't account. U.S. doctrine is that we will establish our superiority. That's what it, it is. Is that a mistake, no, Andrew? Uh, to only have one doctrine, to only say, okay, our plan is to get air superiority, but then if you don't, what do, what do we do? Like that, it seems like you should have a backup now, and we'll oh, listen, we'll get I'll, to the backup thing in a sec. Ooh, I'll he raised say, his hand. You know, so we'll get to Ben Okay, next. go ahead, Ben. I didn't mean, I don't want to interrupt him. You, but you raised your hand. No. I feel like that's your part right, way right, of right. interrupting. So you're, okay, yeah. So I think, here's the thing, is that it doesn't boy. necessarily, uh, when you say one doctrine, the United States invests so much in the stealth aircraft that is the best in the world. Like, there's nothing that rivals the F-22. There's nothing that rivals the F-35. These are works of, these are works of art. They're masterpieces in aviation. And uh, there's it, it, it's for to establish air superiority. So, like, sure, maybe it's an error. That would be, like, it's a, I view it only as a fault if, like, we were just sitting, like, putting MiGs out there. But we're not. These are up a line. They're the best fighter aircraft on the planet. So, I had Andrew. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, I would just add... You know, a couple of days ago, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin were testifying in front of Congress as part of this request for, I think it's $105 billion of additional aid to Ukraine and Israel. Um, and one sort of note that I think if you listen back to their testimony that you'll hear, that's certainly different from what we've heard, you know, from U.S. officials, you know, maybe going a year back or so, is this focus on not just... Um, providing support to Ukraine and to Israel, but also supporting and investing in our own defense industrial base. Um, and it seemed to be a really big concern from officials, you know, that we need to sort of get the gears turning again when it comes to military um, weapons development and, you know, building parts and components and some of the R&D that goes into military development. Um, so, I mean, it seems like, you know, there is a need there. Um, and maybe it's because we weren't anticipating to be in a two front, maybe more, you know, conflict. 
um, because we still had, again, that sort of 1991 playbook or, you know, that Cold War playbook. Um, but I would say that, you know, if we had anticipated this era of multipolarity, we might have gotten these gears uh, started turning a little quicker. Hey, I'm you as Halloween, even though I took off the sweater because it's way too hot in here. Multipolarity is my thing for this week. Um, but you sorry, actually brought sorry. up a great point, which gets us back to this sort of Ukraine problem when it comes to artillery, which is production. And Ben, you were saying that, oh, well, it's fine. We only rely on air superiority. That, that's our doctrine. Um, I think what right now I'm, I'm going to first, you know, get a few little things in and then you can raise just your hand. signaling that I would like to speak yes, after yes. that. I'm just yes. signaling. Yeah. No, don't worry. Don't worry. Um, yeah. You, yeah. Your great class participation. Um, in 1995, right. so if Ukraine, Russia's firing 10,000 artillery shells every single day, that's 3.65 million artillery shells a year. If you want to do 30,000, right, that's about like 9, 10 million artillery shells a year. Uh, in 1995, the United States could produce 870,000 artillery shells every single month. It's from a GAO report, which will link in... Oh, is it from 1990? Oh, no, it's a different... A lot of GAO reports in our doc today. Um, but uh, we'll link this in the description. But um, yeah, in 1995, the United States could produce 870,000 artillery shells a year. That's about 10 million a year, which is what Ukraine would need now. Ezra, what's the state of sort of Western artillery production today? Are we close to 870,000 a month like we could do in 1995? Are, have things gotten bad, but like it's 400,000 a month? Like, are, how are things looking? Play, you love a re leading question, don't you? Love them. Um, no, so pretty much the U.S. is trying to get up to 100,000. <laughs> I think currently they're probably closer to probably like 50 to 70. Um and the 50 to 70,000 shells per month, that is. Um, so, uh, you know, quite a, quite, quite a bit smaller. And I have here um, that it looks like the that European defense firms produce about another 30,000 per month. Um, and, you know, the U.S. has been investing in ramping up this production. But, you know, ramping up production takes a lot of time. You have to, you know, increase production lines. And Europe only very recently started ramping up production. So... The short answer is, if you just look at Europe and the U.S., uh, our artillery production is quite low in, from a historical perspective. Ben? So I don't disagree with, edit, what, what, I don't disagree with what Ezra said. With facts? Um, That's good. But yeah, no, I look, uh, facts don't care about your feelings, right? But the uh, tagging along to what you said a bit earlier than that, uh, perhaps it's an error of the United States ways. Um, but it does seem as though it is the strategy going forward is that even uh, you'll see it in the, uh, what they write it every year, the defense analysis or the national security defense analysis thing that the Biden administration writes every year. So did every other administration. Uh, they, they ditched the idea that the United States would be the world leader, but rather the concept of the West is the world leader. And also the U S military seems to work itself into the strategy of, Kind of only fighting with allies, you know, where the United States is not, not that it can't fight an individual war, but it's not going to, right? And so it's this idea of every, you know, us focusing on high-end capabilities while other NATO members focus on other things. Now, obviously, it's fallen apart, right? Because Montenegro, who really carries uh, 
really carries more than their weight when it comes to artillery. It's just not producing them the way they need to. And so the strategy's kind of fallen apart entirely. But that is almost another reason why the United States have artillery. So you expect their European allies to pick up lower-end capabilities where they pick up the higher-end. So the U.S. assumed that, but based on where the numbers that you were talking about, Ezra, it sounds like the U.S. is aiming still to produce as both... Europe and the U.S. tries to rescale up industrial capacity for artillery shells, the U.S. is still going to produce more than Europe. And they're no matter, even in the most optimistic of scenarios, they're still going to produce not enough for Ukraine to produce what Russia and we haven't even talked about North Korea um, and or China, if should, should they ever start wanting to provide artillery shells, if they haven't already, which man, um, what they can produce, like... This doesn't yeah, seem like a good I think, picture. I mean, I think you, you can look at it on this specific point. Um, you know, the U.S. Is, didn't optimize its de like defense industry to fight a proxy war in Ukraine. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, the, you can look at the capabilities that the U.S. does have and you can see how, how helpful they've been. Um, you know, I think Ben said that, you know, the U.S. is an air and space power, an air and Navy, Navy power, really a space power. And if you look at why Ukraine's been able to have the success they have had, it's a lot of because U.S. intelligence, you know, satellite intelligence, signal intelligence has been incredibly helpful in, you know, these missile strikes on the Black Sea um, and just, you know, generally knowing what's going on with Russia. Uh, that's been a huge asset. Um, you, know, you can look at SpaceX or, or you know, um, what they've been able to do with, you know, the internet. Um, I think like a lot of U.S. Uh, capabilities have been incredibly, you know, decisive in this war. But um, aren't many so, of those U.S. capabilities like the missiles and stuff in terms of how many we can produce a year not sustainable for pure conflict? Like aren't some of these missiles being produced in like the not in like the high three figures, low four figures amount. That seems like it would run out quickly if we actually ever had to get into a war and then we would resort to using shovels like the Russians do. If you get that Shovels? Meme. It's a it's a meme online that anyway. During during the Russian offensive they were saying that they're resorting to using shovels and then it became a meme. That, you don't have to explain it. It's okay. fine. Um <laughs> 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 um no, I mean, I, I think a lot of people within what we're talking about, these are discussions that are happening in the DOD, right? And you you can like read reports about like underinvestment, you know, in, you know, after after the Cold, Cold War ended, pretty much uh, the U.S. government got all the big contractors together and said, we're not going to keep spending like we used to. And they told them to consolidate um, and try and, you know, get the best, you know, they optimize for price efficiency, not for industrial capacity. Right. And there's consequences of that. Um, you know, I, I would I kind of agree with Ben. Like, I think what people the serious people are talking more about is the ability to produce, you know, air defense and, you know, long range missiles at scale. I think that's or submarines. That's like another thing. But I, I don't think, you know. The U.S.'s comparative advantage is not mass producing one five five shells. And like, it's not something we have to get, you know, our panties in a twist about. But we used to produce a lot or could produce a lot right being able to produce 10 million a, that, was a, that was a i mean that was a pretty inefficient system though like i don't actually think the u.s should go back to cold war doctrine uh like defense procurement well so so you don't you, think you can't just look at once you can't look at one single data point you have to look at the overall structure of you know the u.s defense industry overall 
But then if we don't get a 10 million artillery shells, how do we help Ukraine break out of attritional warfare and back into maneuver warfare? If we're not going to give them the we artillery don't. advantage. I think, I think that's the point is we can't and we won't. It's the U.S. can either escalate and decide that we want to fight Russia ourselves and achieve tactical success, or we can use the capabilities we do have to like let them fight an attritional war where they slowly lose. Andrew, Ben, I think we're noticing a pattern here. Just not not great end game planning. It sounds like for either Ukraine or for Israel. Um, which, I mean, maybe that's also part of our doctrine is that, you know, we're not going to get involved in statecraft and just focus on, you know, principled defense of democracies around the world and keep it, you know, at an arm's reach. But it just doesn't seem like a very um, well thought out foreign policy. So I'm I'm really just curious to see what, what comes out from, from Wait, I think it, over the next few months. I think it was incredibly successful in some ways, right? Like we... we what was Russian strategic failure in Ukraine is a huge success for the U.S. I mean, that's it's kind of morbid to say. But by your was, own picture, but, that they might win, and then wouldn't doesn't isn't the big picture. I, I mean, Russia already did the U.S. win They're Vietnam. Not, <laughs> no, back to that's what I'm saying. So, so Russia can achieve like they can keep grinding in a divka, and they can lose thousands of people to like, capture a small town. That's what a U.S. success looks like. That's what we achieved. Yeah. I mean, that's kind I of underplaying very much what? retrofitted to current day i think you know a year and a half ago two years ago when we're talking about this conflict what we deem as success was very different so i think now to say that like you know two years ago we were talking Russian about two years ago we were talking about moscow coming into kiev and the country falling within a couple weeks and that there would be then a guerrilla warfare to kick the russians out that's what we were talking about. The fact that Ukraine's been able to actually like hold as much as they have is, you know, I think mostly it's a testament to Ukraine, American intelligence systems, and the failure of the Russian military. But um, that sounds like what that, people like, would have said at the end of the Vietnam War. No, I don't. I don't think Ben, you can go. I don't think it's people yeah. were pretty sure that Ukraine was going to get their ass whooped. They they thought and there'd be Russian tanks the in Kiev. For a period, but right after that, it was that, you know, Ukrainians were going to, you know, literally defeat Russia and, you know, it was going to be a very, like, total victory for the Ukrainians. I don't, like, I I don't think anyone smart said that. I think you can, you, you can look at the stupidest NAFO people ever, right, on Twitter that are like, Ukraine is going to take Moscow. You know, there's plenty of dumbass people out there. I think there. the same dumb people are saying that Putin wanted to, you know literally annex all of ukraine and run ukraine under russian control like i think those were equally stupid he did people. he said that so that was 100 i don't think that's crazy they were trying to run a, a coup and install a pro a pro russian leader that's that was a military operation i don't think that's controversial to say okay well it's also in ezra's right they did try exactly that and the united states that's where the united states believed they would fall but the united states intelligence failed to pick up on was that the Ukrainian officials were taking the bribes. The bribes just didn't do anything. They just took the money, defended Ukraine. It didn't go through with the coup. So like that's like that's Russia's objective. They were going to unseat Zelensky, and they were going to put in a friendly administration. They were going to annex the Donbass and presumably annex all the way up to the Dnieper River. So uh, I agree with Ezra. This is a win for Ukraine, solidly. Uh, because they are if still they slowly standing. lose, it's I, a I, win I just for don't Ukraine. Understand how this is a win? Like, wait, the, I didn't say it's a win for Ukraine. You said it's a win for the U.S. Okay, it's a win for the U.S. A win for Ukraine would have yeah. been um, 
would have been actually managing their relationship with Russia. Okay, Ezra, um, tell me this. If you were to poll the average American citizen, do you think that they'd say that the operation in Ukraine over the last two years has been a success for the U.S.? The average American first of all, probably yes. And second of all, I don't really care what the average, but the median average American is like barely. All right. Literate. All right. This is, this is now getting into a bigger contest. The ones that vote. Wait, wait, but I, I think there's like a, a different argument, right? You said like, okay, we hurt Russia. So therefore it's a win for the U S but then there's another argument that Russia's, Russia, at the, Russia's military industrial complex has never been stronger. They never produced more tanks, more artillery shells, more missiles than ever before. They've managed to the more or less weather trained. the sanctions, be able to, have positive GDP growth probably this year, higher than the West. Um, and in the end, they'll be able to take the oil-rich Donbass, resource-rich Donbass, have a... In your scenario where they slowly lose, they get the Donbass and all the resources underneath. The, that are, the, what the, happens the resource-rich Donbass. <laughs> yes, there's trillion dollars of natural resources in the Donbass. Do you not know that? I huh? mean... Okay. Come on. So, come, what? You, you, yeah, this I, I feel like every place has a trillion dollars of resources. Just like when we left Afghanistan, all of a had trillion dollars in resources. East Palestine I'm not doesn't disputing have its resources, but it resources. sounds like bullshit to me. I've been poisoned. Um, I mean, okay, clearly we don't know anything about geography. That's fine. Um, if what Russia now controls, if they were to take all of Ukraine slowly, they would have they would own a majority of potash and other fertilizer production in the entire world. Like, none of those count as a win because, what, they killed, they got rid of their prison population? It sounds like you spend too much time playing Civ Five. Like, if... <laughs> like I can just say the same thing back to you. Like, we have to get the strategic resources. Like, Russia has plenty of... Like, potash production is, like, a low-value chain. Like, you know, like, it, what, it's, like, nitrates, right? Um, like, you can get them in from, like, Morocco. Um, I don't know. I, like, or Chile. Like... Do you, do you really think this this war is about natural resources and that this has been like an effective way of like getting natural resources? Like that, it sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I was saying one of many different, right? You have the natural resources, you have the land, you have the people, you have the, the entire United West stood up against Russia and they ultimately prevailed. They have a stronger military industrial complex than ever before and an army that's actually fought a modern warfare versus NATO, which can produce artillery shells to fight a war in Europe. Like, you're saying that it's a total strategic defeat from, for Russia or a victory from the United States, even though we've depleted a lot of our stockpiles. All right, Ben, you've raised your hand, so you get to steal it from Ezra. Yeah, okay, so you say that they need the artillery. If NATO were to engage in a war of Russia, artillery is negligible. The whole NATO doctrine is designed to fight Russia, is take air superiority, the whole, the whole point of the A-10 Warthog, it is a terrible aircraft that you can't even see out of. It's not to combat insurgents. It's to – remember when there was that huge traffic jam outside of Kiev because all the Russian tanks lined up all the way? It's it, to – for that very specific instance, to wipe them all out. That's the whole point of it. The, NATO is going to be fine. I don't think It'll it's guaranteed – I don't think it's guaranteed that the, the United States military, should they launch an invasion on Russia, will be able to establish air superiority against their ground-based air defense networks. I mean, Ezra, you – out of all of us who know the most on this, like, do you think it's guaranteed I mean, that the it, it U.S. Would, could establish air superiority? I think it would take, like, months and months. Yeah. It would be really hard. I think, I think they would it would do it eventually. Be, I think it depends on what you think. Air, air superiority over Russia, I agree, take months. Air superiority over the Baltics and Ukraine, that's a, perhaps a pretty quick endeavor. I think 
when when I say you know you know R- Russia really committed, they were one of the most powerful militaries in the world, and they committed to taking over Ukraine. And the U.S. really doesn't actually invest that much in defending Ukraine. We can we can talk about the billions of dollars after the fact, but really it it has barely affected the U.S. economy, and we've been able to stop them from taking the country over, and enforce some sort of international norms. Um, like I think that's I think that's a win, you know. Assuming that the Ukraine would 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 slowly would it would sue for pieces, they slowly lose, right? If they fight until the end, and then they collapse then that's not the case, which then goes back to the Time article about how Zelensky is still totally on board with restoring the 1991 borders and does not want to negotiate with the Russians or sue for peace. Which, I mean, that's, that's where the role of the U.S. should be in pushing him t- towards a peaceful settlement. So, I mean, or, you know. Or, as the U.S. is also pushing for elections to happen in Ukraine in 2024, um, which do we think is going to happen? Because they're supposed to have elections. In 2024, let's make predictions. Yeah, what what uh, I was about to say, like, what what percentage of people put on uh, elections? On I mean, Ukraine I've having seen, elections. I've seen because... a lot of these claims happening in Africa around coup time, and people say, "Listen, we'll we'll do an election in a year once things settle down," and they don't always happen. I mean, Ukraine's also banned a lot of the oppositional parties and consolidated media, so uh, it's a great democracy. All right, all right. Russian, okay. Russian-backed opposition. Wait, that, that's true. That's true. This is just true. No, it's Wait. true, but a lot of them have Russian funding. The consolidated state media state. have one media source that's run by the government? A lot of the medias, I can't speak for the most recent ones, but the ones in the beginning of the war and throughout most of the year last year were all Russian-backed, Russian-funded. Uh, Russia had basically permanently infiltrated Ukraine's culture and their media as well as their politics. I think we would well, be scared winning is kind of in our own media. I mean, like, I don't know. America. Like, there seems to be, like, a lot of, right, people aren't recruiting, right? That's one thing that's in both the Time article and um, the Commander-in-Chief's sort of economist essay. People aren't signing up to join the military. They, you know, corruption is a really major thing. You know, if Ukraine's own investigation found 30% of aid being taken, do we really think the CBS report from, you know... 2022 that the ukrainian government lobbied to get taken down was wrong when they said you know two-thirds of aid don't make it to the front line and then i mean like what's what's your larger point clay that Zelensky could lose an election if if, if it were to be held i think he would probably lose it to right wingers if he lost but what would a right winger so and they would continue to persecute the war even more yeah, I think I think they would you all that cracking down on media, you know, even more mobile. Yeah, I, I think it would go even more. I, I think you know, hopefully Zelensky will try and find a peaceful out. But no, no, no. I, I Zelensky's like Zelensky's a centrist. He's not a war hawk. Well, he campaigned as a centrist. Yeah, but I, you know, I, there's a lot of pressure on him from the right. You know, there is an yes. actual right wing. Yes, he, in Ukraine, he, he he's not part of the Azov Battalion. That's we can say that. Yeah, yeah, he's a Jew, so they wouldn't let him in. Well, um, I mean, I don't get your overall point though. Just, I mean, the state of the, I mean, elections would be people would want elections. Zelensky might not win. That seems to have implications on the future of the war. Um, and then also like Western support for the war too, 
right? As mm-hmm. right, the, there's a new aid package being talked about. I think this timing of of the article by Simon Schuster probably isn't going to help it get passed. Where he's like, Simon, you don't understand. Everyone is stealing, is one of the senior officials, and that's my terrible Slavic accent, which I will never do again. Don't worry. Um, that and then right, Ukraine is dependent on Western aid if they ever want to break out of attritional warfare, and entirely dependent to even sustain attritional warfare. So like. Will they slowly lose? Could Ukraine collapse? I would bet against a Ukrainian collapse, mostly based off the fact that, you know, states are always more resilient. If you look at what it took for, like, you know, if you look at World War One and World War II states, it takes a lot for a country to fully collapse. You know, we haven't even seen even medium or we haven't really seen mut- mutinies. So if you start seeing small well, scale mutinies, so that would in, be, I think, a, in the Time article... Right. He mentions a commander who was told to take a city and he just said, no, we're not going to do it. Um, And if you and if you remember, right, like why, why did Ukraine start off with these big mechanized push at the start of the counteroffensive and then stop? Because commanders weren't doing it anymore. They, you know, I mean, well, I mean, they adjusted to the realities on the ground. I don't see any evidence that there's a large the realities on the ground or they just you're going to take a large number of losses at the start of a push. That's what's happening in Avdivka right now with Russians. They're losing hundreds of vehicles and thousands and, and of there people. There was minor, there was minor mutinies after the Avdivka push. I don't know if you saw that. You're talking about Bakhmut or Avdivka? Avdivka no, no, in, in Avdivka, you, you see, you see Russians like there was some, some small scale mutinies on you know units refusing to fight. It's true in Ukraine. In, too. in general, there are tons of videos. I mean, we're not going to fight. We're not getting ammunition during Bakhmut as well. I'm just saying I think both states are pretty far away from collapse. And I, I'm pretty skeptical of – I mean we can talk about Adivka. I think you know, Ukraine's not going to collapse just because you know, Russia took what you – know, you, you said the Ukrainian counteroffensive was minuscule um, and unsuccessful. Look at this Adivka campaign. They've com, you know, committed thousands of troops, hundreds of armored vehicles. Um, maybe even thousands of armored vehicles and they've barely, they've barely captured anything. They were able to kind of, yeah, but they're close to encircling the city, right. To only have one supply route going into the city, much like Bakhmut, but there's not Chasavir nearby to, to resupply it. So sure. A lot of people are going to die in the initial assault, but that's what happens in warfare. People die to make offensives and then you hope to sort of make it up if you're able to encircle the city. And then also, can I just finish real quick? Also that Ukraine hasn't built up. Actually it was, to God, I can't pronounce anyone's name, but Ukraine has been building secondary lines of defenses after Avdivka. If if Avdivka were to fall, which is an immense stronghold in the Donbass, like if you think the Hamas tunnels are impressive, you should see Avdivka. It's like next level. Um, you were talking about like hundreds of square kilometers that Russia is going to be able to take. It'll be very important for getting the entire Donbass. Like it, yes, it's not happening right now but the, it's also the start and they're close to establishing an encirclement of it yeah i, I just don't think yeah we were talking about a it's a small town you know tell me when they take slovyansk or kramatorsk or, or you know but like the major it's cities. not about the amount of people it's about it's it, it was one of ukraine's primarily primary garrisons it was like the stronghold I mean, of the Donbass. The point that is that we're talking about the war on a tactical level, not a strategic level, right? Or an operational level even. And that makes me think that I'm pretty skeptical that Russia's going to have a major breakthrough. I think that's just obvious. Look at, look at a map of what we're talking about. We're talking about a tiny little, a tiny little blip on the overall front. 
This is not with Russia's not a lot not of defensive of lines after it. So like, it's not just what happens when you take Avdiivka, and then also what having Avdiivka then means want, for Russian defense I, afterwards. Clay, Clay, let's make a bet on this end. Okay. I'm, I'm being serious right right now. You think Avdiivka is going to fall, and then the, the Russians are going to have a breakthrough? Or I'll give you I'll give you good odds on that. What do you classify as a breakthrough? Like how much territory are we like? If we're talking about like 200 square kilometers, I'd I'd take that. Like, By what time? Two months after Avdivka falls, a month after? I don't know what qualifies as a breakthrough. All right. Let's go 200 square kilometers within two months after. Well, I mean, I want an actual date because when. It, it, well, after Avdivka. Like, what do you. What, it's conditional. How, how long <laughs> do you think they were going to take to. All right. How long will it take for them to get out of Divka? I don't know. It, de- it, it depends if they're going to. If, if Ukraine's going to do another Bakhmut. All right, we'll, we'll figure right, this. We'll figure well. the bet out. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll figure, figure the, the bet, bet out, out afterwards, and then we'll and then we'll and we'll make it formal. We'll post it on the. Sounds uh, good. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, you clearly want to say. I, I yeah, look forward no, to taking your money. All right, <laughs> I know you're ready to say that with me. I was just going to add. I think that the U.S. position right now and what Putin's strategy is is that he's attempting to sort of just wait us out. I I think U.S. officials think that Putin believes. America doesn't have a big appetite for sort of long-term war. We have an election coming up um, that domestic politics are going to take hold and that, you know, at some point, you know, interest in providing aid to Ukraine is going to wane. Um, Europe's not going to want to do it by itself. And, you know, that eventually they'll be able to take, you know, whatever they want from, from Ukraine at that point. So I don't know. I think when we're judging like current Russian offensive success, I think, that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, they might not necessarily trying, you know, be trying to blitz, you know, like the Donbass in the next few months, you know, winter's coming up, things might slow down. So I think it's, you know, it is probably much more tactical at this point, much more long-term thinking for the Russians. I mean, if you believe Prigozhin, he said it would take two years to take the Donbass. So we're not Oh, what happened to Prigozhin? RIP to my king. Dude, he was he he was the best character of this entire war. Can we just be honest with that, right? The, the, the Do we hilarious. know if it was confirmed? Remember how they kept saying oh, we're out of ammo at Bakhmut and uh, Soji and Shoiju, where's my ammo, Karasimov? Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> Those guys they kept they were like very confused always. They're always just like we gave them ammo, and so I saw a theory emerge that uh, Prigozhin and Wagner were stockpiling the ammo for this coup. Mutiny. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and I don't know if I don't know if that ever got confirmed or not. Also, on a, while we're on it, why why do you guys think he stopped? He would have taken it. Would have taken Moscow. Would have had a fight in Moscow. Probably would have taken it. Why do you think he stopped? Wasn't I mean, a real coup. I I mean, and also like yeah, it was a mutiny against Shoigu and Grasimov, not against Putin. It sort of became against Putin once Putin sided with him, and he was actually quite clear about that in his videos on the day um, with that transition after Putin sort of came out for the MOD, right? This was a mutiny against the MOD and how they were waging the war, which he had, you know, philosophical differences with. But I think by all accounts, Prigozhin was a man committed to the Russian Federation and it doing well. And Somebody tell Peter Zion that. I don't even... What? Oh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What I think do you want to guess next week? It'd be great. But yeah, I don't know. Ezra, Anyways, do you agree right, with that? Next topic? Like, yeah, I think what Andrew said was correct. Damn. 
Um, so you guys think it was all an act? You don't think? We no, didn't it say it was an act. act. It was. We, it was a mutiny against, against the Ministry of Defense. Russia. It just he didn't. Oh, okay, he wasn't going okay, for okay. Putin. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I think. I think he really missed an opportunity there. All I'm saying, shoot or shoot, and Prigozhin was not a shooter. He should have gone all the way up to the Kremlin. Nothing would have stopped him either. I mean, they were digging up roads to stop the guy outside of Moscow. He could have done it. Putin wasn't even there. He was in Sochi at the time. He abandoned yeah. the capital. He could have done it. He's getting ready it's for the next Olympics. Capital, but whatever. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we have, we have two ways we can go on this. I mean, actually three. One is to go through all the exciting ideas that... Um, Ukraine has for trying to break through attritional warfare, um, including attaching jet engines onto tanks as demining vehicles, um, or more interestingly, the use of drones for artillery counter uh, counter battery uh, and had to sort of reduce Russia's artillery advantage, which is quite in the weeds. We could go to the winter campaign that Ukraine is going to face and the power outages and how that this time might be blamed on the Ukrainian government rather than the Russian government. Or the fact that none of our ICBMs in the United States appear to work and what that means. Yes, I'm being dramatic, Ben. It's it's a teaser for the people. Relax. It's a podcast. It's not like a journal article. It's fine. So, I mean, I think for the power thing, we said this last year that Russia's going to knock out the power. Uh, but then every time they would hit the power stations, Ukrainian engineers would quickly repair it. Um, and unless, like, Western aid for that, is like gone and hasn't come. I just don't see why it'd be any different this year. Um, so the answer to that is uh, Russia has been really storing a lot of, they've really toned down their uh, use of long range precision guided missiles. And it looks like they're hoarding them for a major attack. Second of all, um, I think it, you know, the, the campaign last year was actually pretty successful. If you look at it, there was multiple times where like uh, a lot of cities within Ukraine did not have power for extended periods of time. Um, and that's really quite disruptive. So you can say it wasn't successful last year. You know, you know, didn't get Ukraine to f collapse, but they did knock out a lot of power. You can look at satellite images of Ukraine just not having power for multiple days. Um, and third, you can see it's really the Russian sh Shahad um, drones that the Russians are now manufacturing themselves, that they'll now, ha now have the use of uh, Iranian Iranian long-range strike and potentially North Korean long-range strike, so that that collectively could uh, tip the balance. Um, you also see, um, also you just see the attrition of Ukraine's air defenses. Talking about industrial base, one of the things that the U.S. and the West have a lot of trouble producing is ground-based air defense, right? Um, and you see right now we're giving Ukraine. Uh, Hawk missiles, which if you look at them, they, they're from 1950 and they look like they're from 1950. Um, so the state of Ukraine's air defenses and how much, how many, you know, how many systems they have, I think that's, we don't know that, but that they would be overwhelmed, I think is a real possibility. I mean, I think we do kind of, ha I mean, we don't have it off the top of our heads right now, but we could sort of combine the Discord leaks plus the amount of sort of aid deliveries of Western air defense systems to get a general sense of what Ukraine has left at this point um, in terms of air defense systems and missiles left. I, w I was wondering on that front, there was an article in the New York Times at the start of this week, I don't know if you guys saw it, about the Franken-Sam initiative where the U.S. is rigging um, Ukrainian slash Soviet air defense systems to work with U.S., weapons and rockets and at first it was reported it was just the patriot missiles but it's also like 
the AIM missiles or AXM the missiles? So it's what it is, is we have a stocks of, you use the Hawks, and we have stocks of old air-to-air missiles, uh, specifically like the Sea Sparrow. Um, so it, these are like 1970s and 1980s air-to-air missiles. It's like what like they would have shot in the original Top Gun um, off of F-14s. So they're pretty much rigging them to become ground-based air defenses and then combining them with Ukrainian old Soviet radars. Um, so I think that tells you pretty much how desperate they are. Yeah. Um, but okay. But just cause it's from the 1970s doesn't mean it's bad, right? Because no, I'm not saying it won't be effective. I'm saying is you give, you give the old Hawks and the old sea sparrows once you run out of, run out of everything else to give. Or run I mean, out of what you're willing really, to give, right? Like assu- yeah, I, mean, I assume we still have Patriot missiles for our own. Systems. I mean, it, I mean, we have to defend Guam and Taiwan and, you know, our bases in Taiwan and Japan. And then also we've we've already given batteries to Israel. So attrition of of air defense in the West is a real problem. And it'll be it could be a really big problem for Israel. Do we have a solution for that? Jordan also wants a patriot, too. I mean, so going back to U.S. doctrine, um, U.S. doctrine would be you, you can't you can't maintain that, that those that level of attrition just intercepting them. U.S. doctrine is we use our offensive assets to strike the missiles and stop them that way. That is U.S. doctrine. So we, yeah, so we don't have a good answer, no. And that's also a very expensive answer, no, especially when, what, the Lancet drones cost $30,000 each and you're spending a $9 million missile or however much the right Well, I don't, th- I don't think we're using Patriots on Shahads, but yeah, no, it, it's a very non-economical way of dealing with the problem. Yeah, the United States fights wars like it's the United States. And this falls flat when they're trying to help other countries fight wars who are notably not the United States. Who are very poor, Wasn't yeah. that... Yeah. No, no, go on, Andrew. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. No, I was just... Sure, it's like... multipolarity. Yeah, is it my multipolarity? That's my thing. I don't know, it's just... If we were still the world police, the global hegemon, wouldn't our military, like our um, defense industrial base match that role, you know, like if we're like, isn't our job supposed to be to fight everybody's wars for them? Like, shouldn't we have been prepared for this if if that's how, you know, U.S. officials have been posturing? But like, I don't um, think we're going to like nationalize our, our country's factories to help Ukraine. If it was us fighting it. I yeah. think we we would. If but it like, was, if the United States was fighting Russia right now, we would. I mean, we would have some shortages. We need to do ramp missile production, but like, we would be decidedly equipped for it. The issue is that Ukraine is not the United States. Yeah, like and we so would take Tesla's factory in, in Austin and be like, "You're now making artillery shells." And Elon would be like, "What?" That's what yeah. would happen. Um, although, what what is interesting is you know everyone hates him, but Peter Zion was talking about a fact that under Biden we I like we've we've. Pl- Oh, nice. Uh, we've planned a doubling of the industrial base that'll take, you know, five or six years to play out, which I guess doesn't sort of factor into the war. Although, you know, Prigozhin was saying that the war could take five plus years. I know Russia's sort of preparing to fight a long war, too. Could things shift or does that get countered by the Russian industrial buildup and the f- fact that North Korea is supplying millions of artillery shells and South Korea believes maybe short-range ballistic missiles as well. I'll just say quickly, because I know other people probably have thoughts, but like just big picture. I don't necessarily agree with this, but if we do think that China is the biggest existential threat to the United States on a geopolitical level, 
then like I think we should be urgently trying to practice diplomacy with Russia and not have them be our adversary. And so this sort of path of, you know, a five plus year war that's only going to entrench current bilateral relations makes me super nervous because I think Russia could be um, a good balancing uh, sort of weight against China. But it doesn't seem like we feel that way. I mean, I think that's like a longer conversation we should have, like when it comes to, I think, I I still want to do this. Yep. We'll do it next podcast or the one after that. Like, th- that's part of Vivek Ramaswamy's sort of peace plan and sort of pitch about ending the war in Ukraine. Um, but I do think there's also a very solid counter-argument by Chris Christie where it's just like, it's too, like, the only way you're going to get that is by shrinking NATO, by kicking out a lot of the members we've added in post-Cold War. Um and then would NATO even – like we sort of in 2008 at the latest sort of sealed this bed with how Russian-American relations were going to go. And that sucks maybe, but that's sort of the path that we've taken and it's kind of too late to go back on it. But that's a conversation I mean, for another it, time. Yeah. We can all I mean, prepare I just for don't that. think it's feasible to become friends with Russia. Like – so long as Putin is in power, that's just not reality. Wounds are too deep. They've gone too far. It just seems as though it's like how. So say Trump comes in the office. He beats Biden, right? He's, he's governing from a jail cell in Georgia. And he's says, all right, we're, you know, we're going to we're going to pardon Putin for everything. that he's done. we're going to lift all sanctions. He's out. Republicans lose the midterms. They're done. Right. I just don't see how it's a viable strategy in American democracy. But we worked with a ton of the Nazis in, Germany, in West Germany after Kingdom. World War II. Denazification happened yeah, for a few just, years, and they realized they couldn't fill the military, except they got Nazis in there. We, we rehabilitate Adolf Hitler. We, we yeah, rehabilitated himself. a lot of Nazis who over who overclaimed what their capabilities were, what the Nazi army is capable of, so they get jobs in NATO. Right? That is ultimately what happened there. I'm not saying the Russian population is beyond help. I'm saying that so long as Vladimir Putin is the leader, just can't, it will never be until he's gone. You guys getting a, be a bad lag for Ben as well? For Andrew Banjo, they can be counterweight then. But he's you're pixelating at least on my screen. Just me? Oh. Wait, no, wait, wait, hold on. Stop streaming whatever videos you're watching in the background. Focus on the podcast, Ben. Not. Not is it. Better now? No. It's the same. So while you go figure out your internet, let's go talk about the fact that the U.S. can't launch an intercontinental ballistic missile anymore, apparently. Um, So let me go back to our document here. (laughs) Um, Yes, I'm being dramatic, as always. Here we go. U.S. Air Force blows up Minutemen in test after post-launch anomaly. On Wednesday, the U.S. blew up a Minutemen 3 missile over the Pacific Ocean. This is... Uh, article was on November 1st, so it's this week's Wednesday, um, after it failed to launch. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. That doesn't sound very good. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Minuteman 3 missile is what the predominance or all of the U.S. intercontinental ballistic missiles um, are on, and they stopped production in the late 70s. Um, and as early as 1990, there was a GAO report about how all the issues with the Miniman 3 missiles. But I was like, okay, it happened this year. Is is that, are all our other missiles doing well? 
So I went back and I looked, and I'm not going to click through all the articles, but everyone who's watching the video can see our document. And I found an example in 2011. Air Force destroys ballistic missile after launch failure. May 2018. Miniman 3 intercontinental ballistic missile test aborted due to undisclosed issue. In August of 2018, Air Force destroyed unarmed ICBM and tests gone wrong. In July of 2022, failure to launch U.S. ICBM tests ends in explosive disaster. Um, we have, yeah, our ICBM fleet is based on Miniman 3 missiles. We don't test a lot of them, and when we do, they don't seem to work. And all of this comes under the fact that the U.S. is building a new gravity bomb, uh, which is just a higher yield version of one of our existing nuclear bombs, which has an adjustable payload, which I think is really cool, and that the U.S. opened up its first uranium enrichment plant um, since 1954, U.S.-owned. Um, and this comes on the back of Russia revoking its ratification of the nuclear test ban treaty to do underground nuclear tests. Um, yeah, I guess there's a lot of things in here, but just like we talk about like, you know, military preparedness and all of that. Is anyone worried that when we test our ICBMs, the things that are meant to provide first and importantly, second strike capabilities, they don't work. Um, so I don't, I'm not going to say I'm not worried. I don't, I'm not by that all 3000, but I think it's really reality like 5,000 with 2000 stockpile, but, um, I don't buy that they're broken, but also the United States is replacing the minute mail to Sentinel and Sentinel should be fully operational by 2030, by the, the mid 2030s. And Sentinel will be the majority by 2030. It'll be operational and the but, majority by 2030. Yeah, it'll be. Sentinel is already operational. It will be the majority of missiles by 2030 and fully by the mid 2030s. And so I read you, in the Al Jazeera article you linked. And then, and okay. The so you've done further research. So do we know if the U.S. Because the U.S. has also consistently been shrinking its nuclear stockpile, right? We're not increasing the total amount of nuclear weapons we have. Or is the majority going to be Sentinel missiles, but we have a thousand? Do you know? Well, okay. I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe Ezra does. He seems like a guy who know this, but I. I have you're, no you, idea. you're on the big I, screen, Ezra. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a nuclear. This has never really interested me that much. Um, you know, like there, there's actually a kind of interesting debate on whether the number, if the numbers of missiles you have, like, affects your deterrent level. Um, you know, there's never mind. We can get into the weeds of that, but um. But no, I, my assumption is I, I didn't see the stats on all, all tests. If, if over 50% of all missile tests were failures or something like that, something really high, um, I think probably whenever they test one successfully, you don't get a news article. And whenever they test one, um, whenever there's a failure, you get a news article. So I think it's you just have that, that bias there. You have the news bias. Um, but no, I mean, it's an old system and it's getting replaced. Um, do they wait too long? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not really... But 2030 Am I worried is, about, you know... U.S. nuclear deterrence? I'm not really yeah. worried about. No. I mean, the fact that the right, China is also building up their whole stockpile, right? Their goal is to double it every two years? Every year, maybe? Um, and they're all building new things that presumably work better than our 1970s missiles. Yeah, but I mean, uh, intercont an ICBM is kind of an ICBM, 
you know none of it doesn't um, take I, off they, yeah but we have enough that do we we all you know we also have the triad you know we have air launched and we have the trident uh sea launched so i, I don't think you know like do i really think russia or china don't take the u.s like nuclear threat th- seriously no like i i think it's fine what is the expiration date on deterrence so what do you I mean, mean we haven't let off an, a nuclear weapon in mm-hmm. i mean it'll be 100 years soon you know at at what point does that fear of a nuclear weapon being used leading to all this you know back and forth like at what point do people actually care about that um or factored into their you know military doctrine or at what point do you sort of have to move ahead with the understanding that you know the likelihood of somebody using a nuke is going to be low um I mean, especially as I know we're going to save multipolar for another episode, but especially as we're moving towards that world, like, does that whole no multipolarity? Sort of the hats off. Go, it's go out of the way. Does I mean? The, I mean, the deterrence you get from nuclear weapons is from the threat of you using them, not from the memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right, but the threat of using them is predicated on the credibility of actual use of them. And if they haven't been used in a hundred years, then I'm saying at what point does that credibility go out the window? Like at, at what point does somebody have to use a nuke to remind people how bad nukes are? I mean, so I, but aren't we already is, seeing deterrence right now? Like if Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, the U S military would have gone into Russia in the Russia Ukraine. War. I don't think so. You, you, you think if Russia had no nukes and the U S had nukes. Yeah. That we wouldn't, when the column oh, was there, we wouldn't have just blown it up. I mean, that's a weird hypothetical. Like, what do? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's look at the Middle East and see what happens. Like, you know, yeah, but Iran doesn't have nukes yet. Out. Like, you know. Um, maybe they do. Yeah, but is that really deterring Hezbollah? I mean, maybe that is. That's a funny, that's an interesting question. Yeah, it's another I mean, I mean, yeah, the... The Soviet Union, kind of, for a while, there's a, there's an interesting, you know, interesting topic that the, the Soviet Union thought that the ultimate form of military power was nuclear weapons, and they invested a shit ton of money in building as many as they could, and then they got all of them, and then they had to have a whole strategic military review in the '80s, being like, we built all these nuclear weapons, but they don't actually get up. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I I think. You know, I think the threat of nuclear use is real, but like I don't, I don't really see any of your guys's points in terms of the t- the deterrent uh, force of it. You know, waning. I never said it was. I don't waning. think nuclear weapons have. So like, I don't think point. their deterrence has been tested because, like, the Russian nuclear red line is invading, right? Invading Russia, the U.S. I don't know what theirs is, but I'm quite certain it's definitely Washington D.C. was at risk, right? And I mean. Is not a testament to them working then, right? If no one's ever tested, yeah, you're it, absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, I guess I guess I would say that deterrence wouldn't work if, say, you know, Ukraine marched all the way to Moscow and uh, Russia didn't nuke them, right? Yeah. I think if like Russia got point, sacked apart, and they, and they never know? fought a nuke, then you would be like, huh? Yeah, then, but yeah, I don't. But I, think but I don't think. That, but I don't think that would ever use happen. A nuke, it's not right. Like you would, yeah. they they would use a nuclear weapon. I think if you they, say you're going to use a nuke and you don't, then it turns I would use a nuclear falls weapon. apart, right? So Yeah. I mean, you can also look at Russia has been kind of escalating their nuclear rhetoric. Remember, they, they, they have a, they have a, four, a four-leveled uh, nuclear readiness, and they raised it from like one to two or two to three or something, and everyone started freaking out. Um, 
But, you know, Russia has been trying to use their nuclear weapons to control, you know, U.S. involvement in this war. And I don't think it's been very effective at all. But you could argue right. that it was because the U.S. didn't supply F-16s or attackums or a lot of other things that would have probably been a lot more useful in 2022 when Ukraine had the initiative and they had two successful counteroffensives and they could have probably exploded that. you attribute that to Russia's nuclear signaling, though? Um... I mean, the, if you at least that believe... That seemed to be the message early in the conflict. Was yeah, like from, from at least the Biden administration. Escalation. Like by, by their own words, it was meant to manage escalation. So I don't know. Maybe they were lying, but I don't know why they would lie about that. But point is that deterrence is in sort of an iffy area right now. We're like, it's just been a long time, and I, I don't know if there's... Yeah, but I don't think length of time years. since... I, I just think the whole length of time argument is not doesn't really tie into deterrence. Yeah, I don't think it ties into deterrence. I do think it Agreed ties into the fact that people might be more likely to use nuclear weapons. Like, So you're actually in... saying opposite things. Andrew's yeah. saying that people don't take nuclear deterrence seriously because it's been too long. And you're saying people might use them because they forget how bad they are. Yeah, I mean, like one I'm thing sure we should examine. I think like yeah. what in John Lewis Gaddis's A Cold War, New History, like there's this whole thing about how when uh, Stalin saw a nuclear weapon and Khrushchev as well, like. Yes, they built up their stockpiles, but there was something about just seeing these weapons and what they did that they didn't want to use them. And sure, maybe that's, you know, them. Well, Stalin wouldn't have a chance to talk to a biographer before he died, but uh, Khrubashev maybe trying to rehabilitate his image. But like, I, I, based on what you hear about these weapons, I do think seeing them up front probably did instill a fear of God into you in a sense that like, I kind of do take what they said seriously about how they saw it. And they well, just... they're quite homoerotic, if you you know the the phallic nature i think is a point the actual nukes yeah some is it is is that your Freudian analysis of nuclear weapons oh there is actually an interesting political scientist who always points out that whenever men stand next to like an icbm they always like to pat them and women don't do that um so i think there's (laughs) probably something freudian there because <laughs> you you see all the pictures of like Kim or whoever it is, they like to pat the little, the giant, um, the phallic missile. So, what does that say about men in war? Um, dudes rock. Dudes rock. <laughs> um, do we have anything else important before we wrap this up, Andrew? I, I uh, mean, no, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just have a quick joke before we wrap. Um, okay. So the question is, why does Sweden put barcodes on their ships? So that they can Scandinavian. <laughs> I kicked him. <laughs> I kicked him. That was pretty good. You gotta give him that. I thought it was. So we liked it. Okay, good. <laughs> I thought it was. Andrew, like, have I you gotten I someone pregnant? Plays meme or whatever. <laughs> That's a real dad joke right there. I have a I question have to for give y'all. Credit to Zealand football manager Twitch. Okay, Zion. What? You think the Houthis over under Houthis hitting two other countries, not Israel, before they end up hitting Israel? Because right now, haven't they? they got shot down by the U.S. Navy in Saudi Arabia. They hit Egypt. Yeah. and they also hit Jordan. Oh, so two so, more. Like, right the rate they're going. So what? over under. What's two left for them to hit? Oh. They could hit Syria. They they could overshoot and hit Lebanon. They could hit the Mediterranean. Uh, they could also hit the Not UAE. Not the country, but 
Oh, okay, all right, yeah, could, all right, right. The sea. Though, yeah. If they hit like the West Bank or Gaza, does that count as a miss? Yeah, it will count as a miss. Yeah. Ooh. So over under. Ooh, now the Houthis have declared a war on aiming. How do we think? Like, when eventually they're gonna have. Did to you guys Israel. see the music video trying, they made yeah. declaring war? I did not. Yeah, they did like a musical number declaring war. It was incredible in a certain sense. Ezra, oh, oh, Ezra? Do, do, do you think greater or less than fifty percent chance they're gonna hit two more countries? I mean, there's not two more countries left for them to hit, really. I guess will they I get guess... Egypt or Jordan again? Oh, perhaps fine. Not. Yeah, over oh, maybe. 50. I don't know. I mean, can, I think the real question. Um, I don't know. Is does you does Israel strike the Houthis? I think that's a, an interesting question to do odds on. Ooh. I don't. Do they have the capability? How are they? Is Saudi going to so get they, them overflight? I mean, you could just sail down the Red Sea, um, or fly down the Red Sea. Um, I mean, it would be really hard in terms of because you'd have to do it with F fifteens and air, aerial refueling, um, in terms of the operation. Uh-oh. Uh oh. So th they've done it before. With like they've you know they've hit Khartoum and they've hit Tunis. Uh, with F-15s doing aerial refueling, but it would be a, it would be a hard operation. Anyways, do you guys want to do odds on that? I'll go last. Uh, That's where you odds start. Odds on the yeah, Israelis hitting them. I gave it twenty percent. I don't. I. That's a good number. Just my question for you, Ezra. Do you think it's possible the United States could strike the Houthis on behalf of Israel? Yeah, for sure. They've already hit other Iranian proxies. Well, do you think yeah, that's more likely than Israel doing it? That's another. Because um, it would be, I mean, just, I guess how the scale of the strikes. I don't, I mean, it's really hard because they're, it's just hard to hit the Houthis because they're very decentralized. You know, they have all these missiles. They've been fighting the Saudis, so they know not to concentrate. You don't have a lot of good targets in Yemen to really hit. That's the real problem. So... I think the chances of Israel doing it are actually higher. Predicated on the Houthis not trying to blow up some American warship in the Red Sea. Yeah. I would I would also have Israel higher than the US, just also it's Israel's war right now, too. It would be weird for Here's my Do you think Saudi Arabia I mean, might do question. it? On behalf of Ooh. Israel. You had Well, how would we know on behalf? Well, I mean they announced that they shot over that they shot down one of the missiles that went over Jeddah. Oh, I guess not on B. Well, I mean, like on you, you, you know why on because what? Well, they're fighting. They're okay. like they like might not say a statement. They say we did this for Israel, but like if well, it militarily helps the them out. Uh, I think it's kind of low. That's all. Below twenty would do it. Oh, that's all. Uh, what about what about Israel? Israel, I would probably put somewhere. I don't know. Five to ten, like the Houthis are Saudi's problem. They've been negotiating with them throughout the summer, like especially since Iran and Saudi normalized relations. I I'll, think they've. I'll, I'll buy odds at eight percent if you want to sell them to me. Yeah, I'll buy them. I'll buy them at nine. Okay. All right. Well, now I need to sort this out after the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <they're even> <laughs> well, so Wait. okay, I have another question before we go. Then at seven. Go on. We think that Hezbollah. So you mentioned the Houthis attacking a U.S. ship. 
Do we think Hezbollah, Hamas, or the Houthis, and what do you think the odds are on this, will try to attack a U.S. carrier, whether it's the Eisenhower or the Ford? Ooh, just try to? We'll try to. I mean, someone might get a little excited. All three of these groups have not been subjected to U.S. force before, as every other Iranian proxy and terror group in the world has. Carrier, Carrier group or actual carrier? How would we know? Like, like it's not going to be like an accurate hit, let's say, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, it could be with Hezbollah. I mean, fine. You're, we'll, Wait, we'll be, I thought like, I thought it wouldn't be an accurate hit based on my carriers being safe. Now, now you've changed your tune. I, uh, I was Are my carriers at risk, my, Ezra? I'm just, no, fuck off. No, <laughs> what I'm saying is, would they just say? Do we just need to say that they targeted a U.S. warship? Would that be the criteria? Yeah, I would agree. Okay. Uh, yeah, all right. They targeted U.S. warship. Oh, I, I think um, I think probably Houthis are the highest, or Hezbollah. I think it, Houthis. Actually, I don't. And no, I'm going Hezbollah. I'm going Hezbollah. Hezbollah. Yeah, I was no, no probably Hezbollah. not. I just think Hezbollah is the most advanced out of all of them, right? Yeah. So kind of feels like a suicide mission, but I don't know. I'm thinking like Hamas is. It's a martyr tomorrow, mission. I mean, tomorrow's going to be a big day. Hezbollah has a big speech. They're doing a big speech from their leader. They've brought out all the all the party tricks for this. Yeah, but they announced like it in advance. It feels like that's they're not going to declare war, right? Like, you don't do that in advance, do you? Unless you want Israel to watch you declare war, maybe. I mean, they didn't do a music On Shabbat? Video, so really when they can't even use electricity? Although, how does that work? I'm, I'm guess- yeah, well, you're I- allowed to do whatever you want in war. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's in the Old Testament, yeah. Not Except the new. You can't burn down trees. <laughs> no. do, do Jews read the New Testament? They don't read the New Testament, do they? I mean, we read it. We don't take I mean, it seriously. I mean, we have to keep Some up the day. Are you Jewish, Ezra? What? Are you also Jewish? Yeah, Ezra. I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm, I didn't know you were also Jewish. I thought it was just Clay. And Clay's Andrew, not, are you Clay's also not Jewish? actually Jewish. I was born. Were you even born Mitzvah? Clay's adopted. Andrew's a black Israelite. Um, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> I'm a Catholic. I'm a good Catholic. <laughs> good Catholic boy. Good pushing here. it. That's right. Did you, did you see the black Israelites uh, fighting the Palestinians or the Arabs? That happened. That happened no. in Chicago. I yeah. I missed it. I was they so had disappointed. Some in New York too? No, it was in Chicago. It was on Twitter. It was oh, hilarious. Oh yeah, it's I've looked it back up to the '60s. It's I'm like an stuff, IDF man. battalion of black Israelites. I was disappointed. My taxpayer dollars just to see that. <laughs> Equip them with uh, whatever we got. There. There's a fair amount of them in my neighborhood. I'm in Crown Heights. Mm-hmm. Right now? Yeah, no, they have a, a big Man. U.S. presence or New York presence for sure. Um, but wait, wait, Ben, you're Jewish, right? <laughs> uh, no, 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 I'm, no, I'm not right. Jewish or Jewish. I'm. Yeah, you are Jewish. No, not a believer. You're not Jewish. Wait, you're a George Santo Jew. <laughs> Jewish. Oh really? I thought you were exactly because right. he's Jewish. So I'm 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 the only one. No, I'm sorry. What are you I, talking? I'm sorry if I made you believe. You didn't even answer Jewish. my question. Did that. you get bar mitzvah? Of course, I got bar mitzvah. What do you? What What was your Torah portion on? Um, Shmod. Okay, I was Sukkot. There you go. Wait, so okay, did you go the birthright? Yeah. No, I haven't done it yet. Is it fun? Do you like it? No, I mean, I just used it as a free trip. Where's your Israeli wife then? Yeah, it didn't go well, I guess. Yeah, I well, thought... The real like question is what, is, what was your mitzvah? 
What? <laughs> That's not how that works. <laughs> yeah, like your good deed. You have to do something around to you, your bar mitzvah, right? For no. Uh, Mid- first of all, mitzvah doesn't mean a good deed. It means a commandment. It's a, it's a law. Okay. Um, and it, you it's, know it's, his it's, cloak. It's, Come on. Now, now we're just and it, that's just like reformed Jew shit. Doing Wait, do a good deed. The, the, the yarmulke? Not, not all the time. Not all the, were you raised conservative then? Or orthodox? I mean, we went to a conservative okay. uh, synagogue. You know, no, no one believes in God anymore. Um, but like... True. I went, I went to Jewish summer camp. I went to Jewish day school until uh, middle school. I mean, I basically went to a Jewish school. What? Would I move to, move Israel? to Israel? Yeah. No, the the pays worse, highest cost of living. All my friends are in New York. Sure. What if all your friends moved to all your friends with Israel? Would you also move to Israel then? Yeah, probably. What if I all mean, your Tel- friends Tel- moved Tel- is a great city. to the capital of Burkina Faso? Is it a nice place? I so there's this place out here called Naf Naf. Has like chicken shawarma. It's made by an Israeli guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the most amazing thing I've ever had for in my life. I I feel. I mean, if no. All of Israel's like Naf Naf. I actually think Palestinians have better food. Really? Yeah. What's Trading. a Palestinian dish like? It's a, it's the blood of a it's the blood of a settler. Really adds the flavor. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's just Levantine food or whatever. You know, it's you know hummus, uh, kanafa. So that's not you just like Middle Eastern. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Is, well, it, I mean, is, me, is it distinct from the cuisines of other neighboring Arab countries? Of, of course, but like there's, How? you make hummus different in different Israel. places. Also, you know, hummus isn't from like Iraq. If you're going to like a Moroccan restaurant, and they're serving you hummus. That's not like yeah, but hummus you can't say from, I like Palestinian food more and then just name hummus. Like, well, it is. I mean, kanafa. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's. What's possible? I mean, you probably don't know how to cook latkes because you're not actually Jewish. I'm a better cook than you. Wow. (laughs) We have to have a four-way steak off now. Dude, okay. I'll bet on that. I'll bet the most money on a cook-off. The the worst Jewish food is cholent. Do you guys know cholent? Now, what is it? They just throw beans beans and all these bad spices into a slow cooker for an hour or like hours on end, and it just smells terrible. That's like that's if that's how you know if someone's really Jewy or not is if they like cholent. If if you because if you grew up than, than gefilte fish, gefilte some fish people like great, that. Cholent is Google cholent. It's it. truly the grossest shit I've ever seen. How really? Do you spell it? Grosser than your mom. C H O L E N T. I think cholent. Thanks, Ben. Mm-hmm. Look up cholent Jew food. You don't need to. <laughs> It comes up. Oh, I should I yeah, should be right searching here. this for everyone. I'm doing it as you asked for. I typed in Jew food too. Doesn't that look terrible? It looks kind of it looks like chili. It looks like Jewish chili. Yeah, bro. Have you ever been like yeah, Mexico? It's... You don't like chili? You don't like I, my people's fine. food? I make a mean bison chili. Put some hot peppers in there. Okay, no, no, no even about bison. Ooh. Okay. No need to get Cincinnati bison. chili? Oh, don't, oh, get get the hell. <laughs> Skyline chili is disgusting. You're from you Chicago? Like Skyline? Not Cincinnati, bitch. Right? Hey, Skyline chili is from Cincinnati. Uh, Alright, you guys know. you guys somehow figured out how to fuck up hot dogs, so I don't really give a fuck what you think. And whoa, pizza. Whoa. And pizza. You don't like yeah, and, and your pizza dog? sucks. 
and your weather right, sucks, and on, your I'm crime sucks. You, I'm gonna tell you right now. I'm hold on. The crime is incredible, I'm folks. Right real, real Chicagoans don't like deep dish pizza. Okay, we don't actually eat that shit. Okay, that's it's like a casserole, right? It's like a special yeah, occasion is. pizza. Okay, we our real pizza is it's flat with sausage under the crust, and then we cut it in squares. That's yeah. the real Chicago. Stop pizza. trying so hard. And that is pizza, bro. What, no, we have two types of pizza. We have the deep dish and we Wait, have the you're in England right now, so you really shouldn't be allowed to speak at all. Oh, uh, dude, pizza here yeah. is so yeah, bad. And Andrew, <laughs> did, did we get Pizza Express while you were here? Remember Thank asking God, I people. Don't think so. I stuck to Nando's. No, I think I think you just didn't eat it. I think you went to bed, but like oh yeah, you had a bite of it. Oh. Like, no, I'm going to bed instead. I remember that. Yeah, um, yeah. I came yeah back and I was asking people, boxes. "Oh yeah, Pizza Express, you know, where like Prince Andrew diddled the kids or whatever." Um, that's supposed to have like good pizza, like New York. There, dude, it's just like Chuck E. Cheese pizza. It was so disappointing. You have good Indian food, right? No. Yes, we do. I mean, London has like yeah, good, good food, except food, Indian, and food. they have like a good Italian pizza. They don't have good New York pizza, which is the best pizza. So right. we'll fix that. Chicken masala is one of their national dishes. What'd you say, Ben? Really? I said that pizza was created in America. You was. was dude, we're the best country Italy. in the a world. Lot of, dude. A lot of Italian dishes that they claim are authentic were invented in America and brought back to Italy because Italy Apparently was Japan a poor country and America. Had, I don't believe that. Look, to, to, I just look. No offense to the Japanese, but of all our allies, they are the ones I suspect at least to pizza? nail pizza. I mean, Saudi I also go. I believe. Poland also has no idea how to cook a fucking pie. Uh, right? I like a pizza is, pie. Is that no true? Because they do good burgers. Like out of Europe, they're one of the best burger countries. Oh, but building, uh, creating a burger is different than making. You would be a surprised. Pie, London, dude. London, until very recently, had no good burger establishments. Now there's one. It's called Truffle Burger. They want to give us a promo <laughs> code. You just made some people so mad. Anybody's <laughs> been so operation. No, no, we're not. We're, this is all cut. This is all cut, right? No, it's not. This is the end of the podcast, just trailing off into food. So to tie it all back, the fact is the U.S. has the best food in the entire world. And so I guess my final question to everyone is, let's be honest, in 10 years, U.S. is still number one, right? Yeah. Uh, wait, Clay. The one thing I will say is that when you go back and edit this, if you do keep this in, you need to cut Truffle Burger and you need to cut where Ezra said his uh, neighborhood was because Truffle Burger is right outside your house. Not anymore. Wait, my house Crown, flooded. Crown Heights, there's like 50,000 people in Crown Heights. Yeah, and there's also multiple Truffle Burger locations in fellow, London. All right, I was just trying to be... A, I, was trying to be right, I'm much more scared of getting murdered by the people of Crown Heights than someone <laughs> reading, watching this podcast. <laughs> being like, I'm going to run this going. We'll take you to been, Crown Heights when you come to New York. He man. said, what about artillery there, shells? Uh, I'm going to them. <laughs> there's been two murders right outside my apartment. Um... They're coming for you. Oh, one one murder and then another shooting. They didn't die. Oh, my nice. bad. Wow. But no, it's just it's kind of rant. I don't. I think there's like some gang in the apartment across the street. So it's, it's like not like the neighborhood's actually that bad. It's just like you should ask to join. That might want. I'm sure they want to. When am I gonna nice come to Jewish New York, school? Andrew? What what's a bet? What's a good time to come? Okay, to New York? wait. All right, we should we should end this podcast time. where we start planning like plans just on air. Um. My question, U.S. number one food country, obviously. So in 10 years, we're still number one, Ezra? Overall. Yeah, of course. Okay. Andrew, I'm yeah, guessing and answers no. Yeah. Okay. Wait, no, oh, okay. Like being the My answer best is, country in the world. is no, and now it's yes. And on that, 
That is episode three of the Long Telegram. The quasi-Halloween episode. Don't worry, next year, when we're totally still going to be here, we'll all do proper costumes. um, Because no one in this group chat responded to my idea to do a Halloween episode, so no one really planned except for Ben, because of course he has masks, he gets up to weird things. And on that note, we'll see you guys soon.